0: Leonard Lopate at Large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy declared that science would take us to the moon and also make the remote reaches of the mind accessible and cure psychiatric illness with breakthrough medications. He was only partly right. Although we walked on the moon in June 1969, psychiatric cures continue to elude us to this day, over a half century later. In his latest book, Daniel Bergner, a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, looks into why we still don't understand how the mind works and quote, the chasm between physiology and consciousness, between what we're made of and who we are. In the treatment of mental illness, his book, The Mind and the Moon: My Brother's Story, the Science of Our Brains, and the Search for Our Psyches, is published by Echo and brings Daniel Bergner, to uh, Bergner, I'm sorry, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. It's great to be here. As I said, you've described this book as an exploration between the chasm between physiology and consciousness, between what we were made of and uh, who we are in the treatment of mental illness and of the cost of our belief in biological psychiatry.
1: Right. So lots of ways to tell this story, but let me just start with the personal because it is, partly a very intimate look at the science of our brains and the search for our psyches and the wish for mental health. And that story begins with my brother when we were in our early 20s, and this was in the early 80s, just as the biomedical view of psychiatry was really taking hold, he was diagnosed as quite severely what was called then manic depressive what's called now bipolar, um, locked wards, heavy medication. Parents told he would be suicidal without that medication, so everyone was in terrible fear. But ultimately, his story raised lots of questions for me, for him. He's a pianist. I couldn't really play adequately or up to his standard on the medications. Ultimately, took himself off. Leads a very flourishing life. And this is, I should say, not a speech or a book to say, leave your medication behind. That would be entirely irresponsible. But it is a story, a set of three stories that really raises questions about our assumptions. And let me just turn to the hardcore science. Well, well, first of all, you,
0: you were told that Bob would be a serious suicide risk for the rest of his life. Um, although medications had been developed, as JFK had predicted, to treat people with his condition.
1: Right. And in fairness, what we were told as a family was the medications could stave off the worst. Um, and that without those medications, the worst was
0: likely. And he was now, given he- antipsychotics. Didn't they have side effects?
1: They do. Uh, Haldol has very marked side effects, um, starting with tremors, uh, difficulty walking, shuffling gait, uh, ticks that can be really debilitating. And then even uh, the relatively tolerable lithium that he was given, but given at a high dose, can also cause quite serious tremors um, and make for instance, playing the piano at a high level, very difficult. So all these medications have trade-offs. And what's, what became so fascinating to me is, as I was telling the story of my brother and a couple of others whom we'll get to, I was also spending time with these leading neuroscientists and psychiatric researchers who would spent their entire lives devoted to the discovery of better drugs to treat our mental health conditions, and what they were consistently saying was, we haven't made any progress in half a century. So the question became for me, you know, where do we go from here? What have we learned, and where can we go
0: next? Well, you mentioned that he was given lithium, and you're right that 19th century doctors used lithium to treat kidney stones. Later, wasn't it once used as an ingredient in 7-Up?
1: It was.
0: So, did that loss. eliminate? Did people who drank 7 Up uh, cure themselves of any, any psychological problems?
1: I think it was seen as a slight uplift in the amount it was, uh, it existed in 7 Up, but also a slight risk. So, it was removed even in that teeny amount from 7 Up. But that story is emblematic of <laughs> many of these medications which were discovered. By happenstance, I mean, the antipsychotics started off as a fabric dye, then became an antimalarial, then became a sedative used before surgeries, and then in the 50s began to be tested with people who had been diagnosed with psychosis.
0: Now, Bob was diagnosed near the beginnings of what you call psychiatry's third revolution. It's third revolution?
1: Yeah. So... To simplify just a little bit, around the turn of the 19th century, there was a bit of a humanitarian revolution. Uh, Psychiatric patients were no longer, or at least less often, chained to walls and Mm. subjected to all sorts of abject torments. Then, of course, psychoanalysis comes along uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s with Freud. And then the third revolution amounts to this embrace that we still take for granted that our brains are the, the physiology of our brains, the neurons and their connections are the source of our mental health issues and will provide the cure or the solution to those issues.
0: Well, uh, you mentioned some of the, 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 the things that were done over the years. Some of them, uh, well, they've been rejected, like ice water plunges, electroshock therapy, prefrontal lobotomies, which received the Nobel Prize in 1949. Uh, I don't. Boy, that was that was kind of scary. Um, Haven't relatives of patients who've been lobotomized requested that the prize be revoked?
1: uh, Not to my knowledge. And of course, one of the recipients of that uh, surgery was President Kennedy's own sister. Mm -hmm. It's part of a larger story that really goes back to the Enlightenment. You know, we had this Moment of faith in rationalism that we still live by. And of course, the whole system of checks and balances that we live by in our government is a product of that. At about the same time, we began to think okay, we can extract the psychiatric problems from the brain, or we can shock the brain by virtually drowning people, in Hmm. one example, or by lobotomy, uh, you know, excise the trouble. then we can medicate the trouble that replaced lobotomy uh, by the 50s. We haven't gotten there. And it was just fascinating to me to listen to these neuroscientists talk about their hopes for the future, but also their near despair over lack of progress.
0: Well, you report that leading neuroscientists told you that they've made no true progress in medicating mental illness over the past half century. So, what role? Has the pharmaceutical industry played in perpetuating our belief, uh, the, the, our view that uh, the the biology the biology of the mind and our uh, and and our belief that drugs are the best form of treatment?
1: The pharmaceutical industry has, of course, played a very large role. Um, two factors converged increasingly, and then culminated in the eighties, and created the reality we live with today. One was psychiatry's desire to be seen as a pure science, to get beyond psychoanalysis and be seen as something much more objective. And the other was the early development of medications, which, of course, the pharmaceutical industry wanted to capitalize on. These two things came together. And so. In the area of people diagnosed with psychosis, we had this uh, sort of certainty that antipsychotics would not only work, but we kind of forgot that they had these devastating side effects, that some people were unable to walk, that they were subjected to the you know horrific tics that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, on the more common side, on the antidepressant side, again, we were told that Here was this Eureka medication. In fact, there's a lot of debate about just how many people, what percentage of people are really helped by SSRIs and whether we're minimizing their side effects. It's been a lot less pretty a picture, uh, less pure a picture than we were led to believe. And so, again, the book kind of investigates why that's so, why the mind which is really what we're talking about, the self, why that remains so elusive, even as we focus on the science of the brain.
0: You mentioned the long-running tension between biology-driven psychiatry and psychoanalysis. Would traditional talk therapy have had a positive effect on any of the the cases that you discuss in this book?
1: Well, so let's talk in addition to my brother about a woman named Caroline, whose story I tell in some detail. So conventional psychiatry would call her psychotic. She hears voices very intensely, intensely enough so that sometimes she'll say to me, Daniel, can you repeat that? I couldn't hear you. Your voice was drowned out. But there she is kind of leading. I don't think this is an overstatement, a kind of revolution. Asking us to rethink our vision of even the most severe kinds of mental health issues. And so what she would say, and, and I am getting to your question about therapy, is let's, let's not necessarily focus on suppressing the voices, on getting rid of them, but rather on living with them. And we can go into detail about what that means. But yes, yes. There would be approaches to therapy that would incorporate our issues. And I'm using our pointedly because I think we all have them in one form or another. Um, Another very hardcore neuroscientist spoke to me about coming around to the idea of holding, finding a way to hold our darkness rather than to try to rid ourselves of it. It's it,
0: it means to amazing. learn to live with it, in a sense. In a
1: sense, yes. Not just not in the cold sense of "oh, come on, live with it," hmm. but in a I think profound sense of finding a way to accept rather than attempt to purge our human dilemmas. I mean, there are very few of us who are lucky enough not to feel a kind of darkness now and then, or more often. Uh, sometimes that's quite plaguing, as in Caroline's case with voices. Sometimes it's just feeling overwhelmed by a kind of darkness. And yes, the common theme I was hearing from neuroscientists with the hardest core credentials was find a way, in part at least, to accept, find a way to place yourself within something larger so that your darkness won't overtake you so that you can live with it and make something of it rather than be defeated by it
0: my guest on today's Leonard at Lodge is Daniel Bergner whose latest book is The Mind and the Moon My Brother's Story The Science of Our Brains and The Search for Our Psyches published by Echo this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You mentioned dealing with psychoses, but doesn't psychoses refer to dozens of disorders, which would make it rather uh, more complicated than uh, just dealing with something in in a simple way?
1: Exactly so. And this was another revelation to me as I spent more and more time on the science part of this book. Here's a, here's a good example. So Stephen Hyman, who for a long while uh, ran the National Institute of Mental Health, the biggest mental health research organization in the world, uh, speaks about how a decade or so ago, he was sure we would find the genetic hmm. sources of a range of psychiatric conditions. And now he speaks of his utter naivety that just to take the example of psychosis, you know, he thought one, five, ten genetic aberrations would lead him to insight. And instead, we're at 300 and quickly counting. So, yes, this is partly due to the complexity of our brain, which is all but infinite, and then partly due to with the near impossibility of kind of aggregating, of of making a coherent category out of our conditions. Because of course, Leonard, you and I, and everyone listening is very individualized in this area. It's not like our hearts and our kidneys, we've been told for so long that our brains are just another organ. They're really not. And we know that every time we have a conversation and remark on,
0: huh? Well, do uh, we understand the differences between the mind and the brain or the psyche?
1: Let me back up and, and give you a lesson that a neuroscientist who researches depression told me. He said, first of all, for starters, I thought at the beginning of my career, this would be like curing cancer. Cancer is so dumbass simple compared to this. And then he gave me a great example. He just said, look, every other organ in the body, I could give you its cells and its cells are more or less doing what the organ does. You can look at a heart cell and it is pumping. This is so far from what's happening with the brain. The neurons, the individual cells are not thinking. The brain is so much more than the sum of its parts. And so... We, at least for me, this took me down some roads that we might call spiritual or ineffable or somewhere, you know, in that range of words. But regardless whether one is a strict atheist or one is willing to go that other route, one has to reckon with the fact that the mind, who we are, really can't be reduced to what we are, to that thing inside our skulls.
0: And don't um, standard diagnoses often collapse what some scientists believe are different conditions into one?
1: Yes. um, To your point earlier, absolutely. So, um, you know, there are people who object to the term psychosis at all, but if we're going to use it, there's a whole spectrum of conditions that might lead one to have the hallucinations either auditory or visual, that we would call psychosis. Very difficult. And then, you know, even people labeled as bipolar, again, often have hallucinations of one kind or another or delusions or what Caroline would carefully call just unshared realities, individual realities. And here we get into a set of philosophical questions that i find really compelling because even someone as different from me in some ways as caroline is also really raising questions about each of our subjective spaces the subjective spaces that we each exist in and so i hope her story is emblematic of all our stories
0: Haven't some studies shown the efficacy of placebos in in treating depression?
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting territory and hotly fought territory.
0: Because in a sense, that would suggest that we are believing that we can cure ourselves. And so we take the placebo and it works.
1: So I want to be careful. I think, first of all, I should just say there are members of my very close family who've taken antidepressants of various sorts and would say that they have helped. Hmm. But yes, there's strong evidence to show that except in about somewhere between 10ish, 15% of cases that what's at work with the antidepressants is a placebo effect. The, we could for shorthand say somewhere between imagination and just the effect of the attention of the prescribing physician, Um, so that there is an effect, a real effect for that 10, 15 or so percent, but for the rest, a different kind of force is at work.
0: The Times reported recently that some people are microdosing psychedelics to try to improve their mental health. That would seem to be counterproductive, at least as I understand what psychedelics do.
1: Well, to those of us who are a little bit wary. Yes. But so here's here's what's so interesting to me about psychedelics. Of course, tons of media coverage lately. Media has embraced this. It's a great story. What could be better? Well,
0: it's your you know, newspaper.
1: I know. I know. I wasn't going to dwell on that. Yes. <laughs> the New York Times, I believe, has been a bit guilty of this. Here's how the studies break down. It's fascinating to me. So. There have been a couple of large scale studies that have shown beneficial effect for psychedelic therapy. But underline therapy, because what distinguishes the successful from the unsuccessful studies is that the psychedelic is paired with quite extensive therapy of a very particular kind. You know, I've gone so far as to read the manuals. The manuals are all about finding a way to connect with something larger. They talk in terms of the cosmos. One neuroscientist apologized to me for the quote woo woo in what she was about to say. But she emphasized (laughs) this is really about combining the drug with learning to place oneself within something larger with it, with finding a kind of meaning that redeems or recasts the dark feelings.
0: It sounds almost mystical. On the other hand, many of the things that uh, have been proposed sound mechanical. For example, didn't the chemical imbalance theory of the 1960s propose that depression could result from a deficiency of neurotransmitters? Has that turned out to be true?
1: That is not really borne out, and you're absolutely right to create this opposition between the mechanical and the mystical, and I want to return to the mystical in a sec, but yes, by the 70s, we had this crude idea that there were excesses or deficiencies in our systems, particularly of dopamine and serotonin, and that these could explain uh, psychosis on the one hand with dopamine, depression on the other hand with serotonin all we had to do is rebalance the studies just don't bear that out we can't even do the kind of close measurement that would bear that out uh the leading neuroscientists just they compare the sort of serotonin side of this and the ssri approach that's emerged from this as of treating the brain like a water balloon and you inject something into the water balloon and you hope it's going to work well it might kind of work but meanwhile it's working on all kinds of things within the system in ways you know some beneficial some very much not so we don't really have an exact understanding at all again because this brain the brain is just this marvelously and elusively hmm. complex
0: thing. Well, we mentioned lithium earlier, and uh, lithium was approved by the FDA for psychiatric use in 1970, but you write, no one had more than a vague concept of how the drug worked neurologically. So we, we're just experimenting on people?
1: I I don't want to go that far. I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing only because... There is an aspect of that, right? So if we go back to lobotomy, if we go back to the antipsychotics that have these really deleterious side effects, it can feel that way, very much so. Are we experimenting on people? We are operating by crude trial and error. Uh, We I guess what's most disturbing to me is I think mainstream psychiatry has assigned itself a kind of authority that perhaps isn't warranted. And just for a quick example, even the New England Journal of Medicine, when I was starting out on this book, had, uh, by coincidence, a lead opinion piece just announcing psychiatry in crisis and hmm. calling attention to this very problem that the biomedical approach just hasn't brought us understanding and it hasn't brought us medical solutions. The World Health Organization just in the last year has a much more strongly stated version of that. Well,
0: I haven't I many, people, many thought people thought since in an- since the 1960s, that depression results from a chemical imbalance, imbalance in the brain from a deficiency of neurotransmitters? Uh, that, that has
1: been the theory, but it just hasn't really been borne out. So. But the,
0: the theory is that too many or too few neurochemicals could lead to different kinds of mental illness. And that's right. gone. That's no longer believed. Hey
1: is it it's still if you go on the nimh website it's still up there so for the lay person the non-expert who wants a quick explanation that's the quick explanation you'll be given but go into a lab with a neuroscientist like uh, eric nessler i spent tons of time with is a great philosopher and scientist. And he'll tell you that just doesn't mm. make sense. For instance, he's looking inside the neurons, inside the cells of the brain, for mechanisms that might hold the secrets. And this is really interesting. I loved this. he's looking for the secrets that if you think about the people we know that are just seem impervious to depression. They're the kind of people, who, like when we're feeling low, they They're so buoyant and we kind of feel like, how can I even be around you? How is it possible that you never get depressed? He's looking for the mechanics that go on in those people's brain cells that kind of protect them from the darkness that occasionally or more than occasionally overtakes the rest of us.
0: Well, a scientist told you that the idea that the antidepressants called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, could further our understanding of disorders was like saying, I have pain, so I must have an aspirin deficiency.
1: Right. Uh, That, again, is, is Steve Hyman, fascinating scientist. And that was what was so striking to me. I just feel like I hit a moment when science was ready to acknowledge its half century of frustration that we've it's not that we shouldn't continue this search I don't want to be nihilistic about science at all it's fascinating it's exciting it's exciting to be around these people in their labs but it hasn't taken us where we need to go and that's why without getting woo-woo mystical Hmm. i think there are places and approaches that are worth speaking about for atheists and religious people alike
0: and you end the book with a look at religion so is religion function like a placebo in a way
1: I guess that would be one way to think of it if you think of religion and I want to use religion in the broadest sense. So we're not just talking about the three Abrahamic religions or traditional ideas of God, but we're talking about ways of seeing ourselves within a larger, well, within a a cosmos. So I, you know, Caroline would had a transformative experience on a farm with animals. That was a real turning point for her in dealing with her visions. Uh, my brother combines a religious practice, meditation, music which just another kind of ineffable, or I would say almost mm. religious experience, uh, as a, as a way to live. And so, yes, I, I, th- There's a slow progress toward various religious practices in the book. And I think to go back to the hardcore neuroscientist Eric Nestler, again, he would not call himself religious because he sees a sharp distinction between science and religion, but he would say that the search for one's own place in a universe of larger meaning is a kind of protection against the challenges that we
0: all face. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. When your day is long
1: And the night The night is young
0: my conversation with Daniel Bergner. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains and The Search for Our Psyches. Just go online to give to wbaiorg That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org, or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's 212-209-2950. We'll be happy, if you do, to send you a copy of his book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And thank you very much. And we turn now to Daniel Bergner, who's a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, author of five previous books of award-winning nonfiction. Uh, This one... Uh, the Mind and the Moon, published by Echo. So let's talk a bit more about the the people you discuss in the book. Uh, Caroline, for example, um, who um, is a fascinating character. Uh, uh, Caroline and David have had to deal with psychosis, depression, anxiety, paranoia, and suicidal thoughts, as well as their experiences on and off medications, including the terrible side effects and withdrawal symptoms. Caroline first heard voices when she was very young, when she was in daycare. Is that common?
1: Not common, and an indication in conventional psychiatry's view that she's a quite severe case. So all that she has overcome has been especially difficult. Um, she heard voices in daycare. They intensified even as she was given a whole regimen of antipsychotics and other medications. She heard in a voice, middle
0: and high school, she heard a voice that told her her parents were going to die when she was in elementary school. Right. That, that had to really. That, that that's very disturbing. <laughs>
1: Very, very, and I don't want to minimize that. She heard terribly disturbing voices, threatening her family, threatening herself, and really isolating her.
0: And she was prescribed a whole group of pharmaceuticals in childhood, later drugs like Abilophile, Risperdal, dipacote, Lithium, Seroquel. Although the drugs sometimes quieted her voices, didn't they also lead to obesity, the uncontrollable trembling of her hands and arms, hair loss, and other side effects?
1: Yes, all of the above. Um, and this is quite common. She may have suffered a bit more extremely than many, but uh, the weight gain, very common, even with our most contemporary version of drugs. Uh, and the, the ticks, the kind of... There's, they range from sort of horrific, horrific kind of tongue thrusting to shoulder rocking, hand wringing, et cetera. Yeah, the, the side effects can be debilitating in themselves. So, and, and,
0: and people try self-medicating. She did obsessive exercising in an attempt to lose the weight, did hair pulling, and took drugs, narcotics. Right.
1: Yeah, so by high school, Valium, heroin, ecstasy, An attempt to escape what she was unable to escape or deal with through the prescription drugs.
0: Was she comfortable talking to you about what she'd gone through?
1: It's interesting. We first met a few years ago, and she told me that one of her voices had been, over the previous days, very wary to say the least and then I walked in we met in this kind of desolate cafe in Holyo, Massachusetts which is where the group she works with is based and as she told me later her voice said okay he seems trustable and we've had a developing and deepening trust ever since it's a it's a really special relationship she's a very special, and I should say extremely literary person. We were just this morning emailing about Willa Cather and Melville.
0: <laughs> so you maintain a, a, a relationship with her?
1: I do. She's just such a special person. I'll Just for a little comic aside, I was dreading my book group's reading of Moby Dick, which I've never really been attached to, let's say. And she... Asked me to rethink my opinion. I guess she's a fan. So I I she's just she's just a reminder that people with what conventional psychiatry sees as unmanageable conditions, and even, and we should talk a bit about this, even simply does not trust to have valuable thoughts about his or her own care because they're seen as so debilitated. She is. An entirely complex and deep Hmm. thinker uh, who will, I can guarantee, rearrange people's thinking about the conditions that some of us live with.
0: Well, what about David? He's a civil rights lawyer and a Supreme Court litigator. I don't know if he's uh, been engaged in the latest problems with the Supreme Court. But um, what was the nature of his depression and anxiety other than the, the nature of the court?
1: Yeah, he's such an interesting person, really a top rank civil rights litigator, not involved, as you're alluding to with the current Roe uh, case, but very much involved, uh, you know, as as Trump got into office and then with worries about what might happen in 2020. Um, He is this interesting borderline case, so had always had a kind of low-level depression, his therapist had felt that he was making progress, but David wanted to try antidepressants, did, then tried to get off them, and that's where the real problem started. Pharmaceutical, Pharmaceutical companies are just beginning to acknowledge that withdrawal can be an issue, Um, And then that was compounded because he was prescribed a benzodiazepine to reduce anxiety. And, of course, withdrawal is really an issue there.
0: And uh, they must have known about this for a long time. Have they been hiding it? Is this uh, book partly an exploration of the limits of, of Western medicine? It's
1: certainly an exploration of the limits of Western medicine and, to some degree, the culpability of the pharmaceutical industry. The easiest, most vivid examples of the industry hiding problems is with the antipsychotics. Mm. But if you look hard enough, you'll see it also with the antidepressants. Two quick examples, one, the sexual side effects, which are an issue for about half of people who take antidepressants. That was something long blurred or denied by the industry. And then, to the withdrawal issues
0: just what coming to the surface. Sorry? What are the sexual effects?
1: Impotence and hmm. orgasmia, that is, impossibility of reaching orgasm, hmm. much depleted desire are quite common.
0: So... uh much of the, what you write about in this book also concerns the choices that confront families and patients. And I'd imagine that's uh, just not only the families, uh, the immediate families of the, the people involved, but also the spouses, for example, because of the sexual aspect of it. Um, <laughs> do, do people feel guilty about uh, their role in, in this whole thing?
1: I think this is where I at least need to pause and acknowledge something. The easiest way to do it is to go back to my brother when we were much younger. My parents were terrified of what might happen to him if he didn't adhere to psychiatry's medication regimen. And I think that's so common for parents today and I need to really be sure to reckon with that. Um, So I don't think parents, spouses need to feel guilty. No, I mean, they're reckoning with something that can be just overwhelming. The question is whether parents, spouses, family members can kind of rethink what might be best. Caroline's mottos is, and this is when she's training people to lead support groups, is if I'm controlling, I'm not connecting. Meaning if I'm trying to contain the situation, I'm not able to connect with this human being. And she would say it's only in connecting, in reducing isolation, that I am helping
0: this person. Is some is treatment sometimes a matter of depersonalization when you talk to a doctor about Caroline? He asks, "Has she been tried on a certain medication rather than has she tried?" So she was the object, not the subject of the sentence, the recipient, and not the one who's deciding on her own treatment.
1: It's such a good question, Leonard. And yes, there is a depersonalization. There's the worry, as the World Health Organization puts it, that conventional psychiatry sees a set of symptoms rather than an individual, and that can really lead things astray. It led things astray for my brother. It did for Caroline. I think it did for David. I think for so many, yes, there's the risk of depersonalization.
0: My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Lodge is Daniel Bergner. His latest book, The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches, published by ECHO. You uh, write of a workshop run by the Hearing Voices Network, where you participated in a mock job interview. What happened?
1: Yeah, this was sort of one of the more striking moments for me in the course of of reporting this book so i went to a training and it mixed people who do hear voices with practitioners social workers etc who don't and the attempt was to get we who don't to understand what it can feel like and so i was the interviewee in a mock job interview uh one of the other trainees was interviewing me and a, yet another trainee had a long uh, wrapping paper tube from her mouth to my ear. And as I was trying to answer questions, this woman is sending into my ear notes of doubt, like don't give away, you know, your background. Don't be sure not to say that, et cetera, et cetera. And even though I knew it was a mock situation, even though I knew it was almost a game, you know, it was kind of vibrating in my inner ear. And I couldn't get past it. I kept thinking, well, what is she referring to? What have I done terrible? What am I trying to keep secret? And I finally had to give up. I could not, I couldn't of course do what I wanted to do, which was turn and say, shut up. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't keep coming up with benign interview like answers. It was a real lesson in the challenges that voice hears face.
0: Well, you were, to some degree, being uh, given an illustration of what happens in the minds of people like Caroline.
1: I was. It was a great illustration. I've never forgotten it. And it just, it allowed me a, a deeper level of empathy.
0: Now, Thomas Insel, who from 2002 to 2015 was a director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Uh, recently said, uh, I'm quoting, I spent 13 years at NIMH really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on, on that, I realize that while I think I succeeded in getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion. I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. So why is it with all of the research, we still don't understand how the mind works? Is it that complicated?
1: I think it is that complicated. Uh, Yes, Um, it is. The mind is not the brain, unlike in the case of all the other organs of our body. And what I hope is. Is that especially at this moment, when we're focusing on mental health, there's been a series of stories about crisis among teens. Suicidality among teens coming out of COVID. That my brother's story and Caroline's, in particular, points to some new ways to think about things. Because what Insel's quote alludes to is we're really not in our current approach able to re- to better the mental health of. Us as human beings and then particularly of concern, our children, uh, we're not able to reduce hospitalization. So I think these stories point to some ways to rethink uh, how we might improve things.
0: So if somebody – if I suddenly uh, needed help and, it, and I, it was to discuss whether I should have an antipsychotic or an antidepressant, should – I or my family simply say we don't believe in either of those things really working?
1: No, but they should hope for the following. One, a psychiatrist who has the humility to say we don't yet know how these work and we don't know whether these will work for you. That's number one. And I, the psychiatrist, want to hear... What you're thinking about your own care. So, Caroline was never listened to. She was seen as, let's put it crudely, too crazy to have a say in her own care. My brother wasn't listened to. And I can guarantee you, neither of these people are too crazy to have a say in how they themselves should be seen.
0: Have they and all improved?
1: Treated. Sorry?
0: Have they all improved over
1: the years? My brother leads a completely flourishing life, yes, and as a volunteer now goes on to psych wards to play music and have sing-alongs with uh, residents on those psych wards. And Caroline is a leader in a movement to rethink how we approach the conditions that terrify us. So, you know, we should talk about suicidality a bit. You know, if you... The go-to method is hospitalize the person. And of course, that will you know forestall trouble for at least the couple of weeks that the person's in the hospital, but there's very little evidence that it helps thereafter. Um,
0: it just prevents the suicide for the moment it it keeps you restrained for the moment. Caroline is a
1: completely revolutionary vision that's catching on. She's giving speeches, grand rounds, et cetera, all over the country. That is to say, let's let people who are feeling suicidal come into a room together. Whatever they say, whatever they say they intend to do, the pact is it will not be reported to anyone. Give them the freedom to connect. It'll be the connection. The reduction of isolation, the human bonding that happens, that will reduce the risk of suicide.
0: You mentioned Steve Hyman earlier, the leader of the world's biggest research project dealing with genetics and psychiatry. And in the book, uh, he calls for epistemological humility. <laughs> Is that a phrase related to the divide between the brain and the mind?
1: I think so. And that phrase became a kind of touchstone for me to hear one of the world's leading brain scientists and geneticists say that really sort of brought my thinking together. You know, he's such a fascinating guy. He reads Borges. He talked about his own career as being sort of like Theseus going into the dark to slay the Minotaur, except that, you know, he doesn't have the magic sword. He can't see his way. He sort of sees the brain as this endless set of labyrinths. And I think to extend the metaphor, he's barely crept, you know, one zillionth of a way along that dark maze.
0: So uh, the the book, Left me a bit depressed because I would have thought by now, at least partly, uh, Kennedy's prediction would be true. It it seems to me like we're still stumbling in the dark.
1: I hope it doesn't leave readers depressed. Caroline's story, my brother's story, the places that some of the scientists lead us to in terms of rethinking, I feel are really affirming of what mysteriously makes us human and what as human beings we can do to put ourselves in better places in relation to each other in relation to ourselves but sure if we're looking for a quick fix in this case of of medication or a quick eureka insight into the brain i guess I guess the book will have its depressing effect. But, but you know, I'm thinking about Don Goff, another amazing researcher in the book. It's sort of his, Nestler's and Hyman's book in terms of the science. It's so amazing to go inside the brain of him to see how the hippocampus of all things, this entity rather deep in the brain is as important to consciousness as what we normally think of, which is the prefrontal cortex at the front of the brain. Fascinating to go there with him and yet also to go to him to the places that say, we may not find the secret. The secret may lie
0: elsewhere. And we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Daniel Bergner is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, author of five previous books of award-winning nonfiction, Uh, The one we've been discussing is The Mind and the Moon, My Brother's Story, The Science of Our Brains, and The Search for Our Psyches, published by ECHO. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
1: Thank you, Leonard. It was a pleasure.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 209 that's 212-209-2950 or by going online to give2wbai.org to that's give and the number 2 wbai.org please do it right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and as I mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing The Mind and the Moon, my brother's story, The Science of Our Brains and The Search for Our Psyches by Daniel Bergner. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. If you become sign up to be a BAI buddy for fifteen dollars or more, we'll be happy to send you a WBAI tote bag. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because We rely 100% on listener donations. We're 100% listener-sponsored and the only station in New York that is. And sometimes that puts us in a precarious position. But uh, I I hope you'll be calling us at 212-209-2950 or going online to WBAI.org. And we also hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when my guest, Matt Richtel, will discuss his new book, Inspired, about the science of creativity. We'll see you then.